If you want to be making money in the longer term and you want to grow your wealth and grow your asset base and you want to be investing, it's a long-term put it in and forget about it and let it grow and let compound interest do its thing. If you want to be day trading, you're gambling. And if that turns you on, then go for your life. But but gambling, the house always wins. I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women, author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and host of The Wallet. Today, I'm speaking with Vivi Friedke. She is the founder of award-winning EdTech, Education Technology, startup Black Bullion, and is on a mission to empower young people to become financially literate and take control of their financial future. Vivi tells me about how her mother taught her about the importance of the stock market, which resulted in her buying her first stock at age 15. Investing has become a new buzzword, and a recent call from the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, raised concerns after finding a new, younger, more diverse group of consumers were getting involved in higher-risk investments, potentially prompted in part by the accessibility offered by new investment apps. This raises a lot of questions, and Vivi is the perfect person to speak to about the current surge in hot investments. In today's episode, we talk about the role influencers and FOMO, fear of missing out, play in the rise of popularity in high-risk investment decisions. We also discuss the key differences between day trading and investing for the long term, and why we should be cautious not to get caught up in the hype. Vivi is also a passionate advocate for raising awareness of financial abuse within relationships. This type of abuse can be hard to spot in friends and family, and Vivi shares the sign we can look out for to help someone who might be in need. I'd also just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionB. PensionB has helped over 400,000 customers to be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one online simple plan. With Pension B, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank accounts, check your real-time balance, see your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals all from the palm of your hand. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, who has Pension B called them Beekeeper. You can sign up to Pension B today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes. And if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always with investments, your capital is at risk. Please note that the information made available on this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. If you have any questions, you should seek advice from an independent financial advisor. Also, If you're investing money, make sure you know it's for the long term and you understand what you're investing in. Hi, Vivi. How are you? Good day to you. I am very well. Thank you. So you're the founder of Black Bullion. You've also written two books. And the last one, Stay Financially Healthy, is out now for a week. I guess I, you know, wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, why this book and, and why we need it. But maybe can you start by telling us who you are and where you come from? So I guess I'm I'm a crazy woman who's passionate about people being smart about their money. That's kind of, it's become how I define myself, which I know is not what we're supposed to do. Uh, but my, my background's actually in wealth management. So I helped very, very rich people become all the richer, uh, which was great fun. But I've always been really concerned about the fact that other people don't understand how to deal with their money and don't have the resources to do it. So I started Black Bullion as a 
a bit of a vanity project. I never thought it would work. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then it kind of has. So that's been really exciting and just a wonderful experience for me. So what is actually Black Bullion for those who don't know? Yeah, for those people who don't know, and if you're not a student or the parent of a student or work in universities, you wouldn't have necessarily heard of us. Black Bullion is a financial well-being company. It's effectively, I describe it as if you imagine Netflix Wall Street and Sesame Street having a baby. So it's just everything that you could possibly need to know about finance. I mean, I understand where you come from, because I guess the issue we have is we go to university, then we graduate, and we actually start our life with a huge student debt. And then we're given a debit card, a credit card, and it's like, good luck, go and negotiate your salary, go and live professional life, pay for what you need and try to save money. At which point should we start actually thinking about our finances? It's actually crazy how much we expect people to just figure out for themselves when it comes down to money. It's just insane. My belief is that people should start learning about money as soon as they start learning about anything. You know, so when you're starting to learn your ABCs, that's when you should start to learn what what money is and what it's for and how it works. And people talk about learning at school, and I think that's great, but It's as if when you finish school, you're done with learning about money. And you and I both know that's not even remotely true. So if students are going to get into a lot of student debt and they're going to, you know, use buy now, pay later, and they're going to do all of these things, let's show them how to do it safely. So start young and don't stop ever. These financial habits, when you start acquiring them quite young, it just makes your life much easier. And then maybe it doesn't create these, you know, the inequalities we, we see today. So how do you help uh, students actually? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it is so interesting how understanding how to use money can make such a huge difference to every element of your life. And I think that's part of what, in a sense, it's part of the good stuff that's come out of COVID. I don't know if it's too early to talk about the positives of COVID, but it's highlighted just how unequal our economics are and just how precarious some people finances are and they always have been but COVID has kind of shone a little bit of a spotlight on you know the difference between men and women when it comes to savings and investing activity and pensions and all the rest of it so in a way I think if we can start students thinking about this stuff like they don't have to do anything they just have to think about it they have to understand how money can actually help them as opposed to just buy stuff and you and I have discussed this before right like money isn't just about buying stuff but actually it's about having the opportunities in, in life to do what you want to do, whether they're good things like buying a house or whether they're bad things like leaving a bad relationship. So money is really powerful. And the younger people learn that, the more powerful their financial journey can be. Yeah. I mean, you started to understand the, the power of money early. I know you talk about that in a few interviews, because for me, I mean, I never really had money conversations at home and I you know I started a job actually in finance I went to business school started working in finance but I had absolutely no clue about managing my own finances but what I love is that you told me that you bought your first stocks or your first share at 15 years old yeah <laughs> how did that actually happen yeah I was very, I was very <laughs> young. I was very young. Look, I was really lucky. Your story is more relatable for a lot of people because if you didn't learn at 15, then me saying I learned at 15 kind of isn't helpful, right? So it's it's a lot more approachable for a lot of people when people say, you know, I didn't figure this stuff out until a lot later because that's where most people are at. I was really lucky that this was something that my mom 
believed and continues to believe is really important for people. So, I mean, I, I bought my first stock. I mean, she bought it because it wouldn't have been legal for me to buy it myself. <laughs> so she bought it on my behalf. But I'd always been interested in the stock market because we'd been talking about it for years and understanding how the markets work. And we talked about the stuff around the dinner table. And I just thought, oh, this is a nice way of making some money. And Australia, which is where I grew up, has four big banks. They're called the, the pillars of, of the Australian economy. And I bought stock in, in one of those. And it was just a fun thing to do. I understood that I could lose my money, but I kind of got the bug early. So I've been investing since. I love that it's actually, you know, your mum who taught you about the stock market and the power of investing, because when we now look at, you know, the investing gap between men and women, it's, you know, actually crazy. And women are trying to play catch up in terms of saving more for, for retirement. So the stats are not actually really good. So What would you say to women who are, I guess in the Vespot community, we do a lot of our work around investing, getting women to, you know, look at the stock market, make sure they prepare themselves before they start investing, having some emergency saving, you know, repay your expensive debt. But how do you build confidence around investment? Yeah, I mean, women just are kind of like striking out on so many of these issues, right? And I honestly believe it's all about confidence. And if we look at during kind of COVID, where we had the, the trading insanity, right, and like GameStop and AMC, and that is trading insanity, like that's not what I think we should be doing with the bulk of our money at all. But it was mostly men, because it was men who were kind of taking that chance and having the probably overconfidence. Yeah. Women were kind of not playing that game at all. And in a way, it really speaks to the fact that women tend to not be doing these things. And I think we have to change that because the stock market is still, apart from if you happen to start a business, which then does really well, apart from that, investing is still the best way of building long-term financial wealth. That's just the reality of it. And the only way to gain confidence is to start. I mean, you kind of just have to jump in, you know, get into the shallow end, but you have to be in the pool. Like you just have to, there's no other way to gain confidence without actually putting down some money, starting, you know, you can start small today, but once you get comfortable with what it means, you get comfortable with not looking at it every five minutes. And, you know, if you're investing for the long term, then, you know, you know, cycles happen and you just have to start and you have to build your confidence by action. This is not the kind of thing where it matters if you have a lot of confidence outside, like you can be watching it for a period and you should, but if you watch it for life and you become investment confident without ever having any money in the market, then it kind of defeats the purpose. So unfortunately, this is, you gotta, you gotta get in there. There's no other way of doing it. And you're right, like starting small. And I think, you, I mean, today with like the, you know, these auto saving apps, you can even start with your spare change. But I think it's getting a sense of, you know, how, how does it work? How are you going to react if, you know, there's a, a drop in, in the stock market, there's a market crash, whatever happens? Because, I mean, when I started investing, I remember buying like, like a handful of stocks, so not very diversified, making all the beginners mistake. But that's actually what helped me then build a diversified portfolio, understand what funds are. So I think the earlier you make these mistakes, that's really going to help you. Did, did you make big mistakes with your with your investments or anything that you've learned managing your, your stocks? I guess since since you started very young, you, you've made a few mistakes. Absolutely. I've made, I've made plenty of mistakes, but I've been quite lucky um, and also quite risk averse in the early days where even my yeah. mistakes didn't cost me a huge amount of money in the long term. Because as you said, if you start young and you're starting with, and I'm a big believer in like monthly automatic deposits, right? So if you're doing, and again, like a hundred pounds a month, 50 pounds a month, doesn't have to be a lot, you know, in the early days, 
days when you buy a stock and suddenly it drops and you're like, oh my God. But when you look back 10 years later and actually, you know, it's recovered from that thing, you know, the risk is lower and so is the return. And it's it's a lot of those cliches are, are true. But I've made loads. I mean, the couple of times that I've gone really speculative, I've, I've lost half that money. So I tend to not be massively adventurous or risky with individual stocks. And and like you, I have much more of a diversified portfolio. It is more on the risky side because I'm still young enough as you are to have, you know, a little bit more exposure to, you know, emerging markets and things like that. But by and large, I've never lost a lot of money because I'm not in it for the day trading. So if I have to wait six months, I'll wait until it comes out. I dollar cost average a lot having started really young as well, I've seen a couple of cycles. So you might have been around in 2008 as well, because you know, you're not 25. um, And you probably (laughs) remember the financial crisis. And I remember it was an amazing opportunity to buy, like when the markets crashed within a couple of weeks, the smart money had already gone back in because markets were low. So I didn't want to miss this crisis. And so I put some money in on the 23rd of March, (laughs) which was, you know, the lowest days. So you do just get that experience over time and you're going to make mistakes. And if you just say, well, at some point I'm going to make a mistake and that's okay, then it's less likely to put you off for later because it is one of the best vehicles for long-term wealth. And you're right about this. Very often when we think about investing, we think, you know, we, we are traders. So yeah. our role is going to be to buy stocks that are going to perform very well, buy them at a at, you know, cheap price, sell them at a high price and, and make a profit. Unfortunately, good luck with that because that's <laughs> the best way to actually lose money. So this is called trying to time the market. And, and what we're talking about with Vivi is try, trying to actually be in the market. The most important is time you know, spent in the market. So yeah, if you manage to invest regularly, at, you, know, you will buy pre-financial crisis, so maybe pre-2008 and post-2008, and then you would buy at much cheaper prices. So, you know, that means leaving your money and and buying at at an average price. But I just want to come back to your point about day trading, because last week or two weeks ago, the FCA, so the Financial Conduct Authority, has actually sounded alarm bells after it found young investors were taking on too much risk when investing, with investment apps and crypto and basically at a greater risk exposure. So today there's a lot of noise around investing and people are, I don't know, they have this fear of missing out. They see people, you know, making a lot of money on on crypto, on Bitcoin, or actually just buying some stocks and selling it. For me, this is extremely dangerous because I think once you go there, you you spend money, you try to make money very quickly. That doesn't work this way. You sort of, you know, burn your fingers and then you're out. You don't want to invest anymore. You're too scared because you've lost a lot of money. So, you know, what do you think about this, this new trend? Everyone can invest money. It's really democratic, but should everyone literally go and invest in anything? Yeah, and I think it's a great and important point. And I'm kind of glad that the FCA has been putting out those warning bells. Unfortunately, they're not kind of saying what should happen. (laughs) They're not giving any real guidance. They're kind of saying this is a problem and then they're walking away. I think there's a couple of things. The first is people have to understand the difference between investing and trading. Trading is much more like gambling. And we just need to be really honest about the fact that that is true. If you are day trading, you are effectively gambling. It might be slightly more knowledgeable or not, 
But but if you're investing for the long term in you know companies that produce stuff which has a market which is making money, that's very different to trading in GameStop, which was you know not and Hertz. I mean, people were trading in Hertz, which was technically bankrupt because other people were piling in because they'd heard about it on Reddit. That is not a good reason to put money into these things. Yeah. It just isn't. So the first thing is you have to differentiate between trading and investing. There is a role for trading if you get a bit of a buzz from it and you want to put a couple of hundred pounds into something to see what happens and you're willing to lose that money and you assume you're going to lose that money, then fine. But it wasn't Warren Buffett. Everybody says it was. It wasn't Warren Buffett who said, you know, investing should be like watching paint dry or grass grow. If you want to get a buzz out of it, go to Vegas. And I think that that's how people should view it. So there is a role for all of these things. You have to understand you know, what the downside is. And I fear that actually what's happened with young people that the FCA is talking about is that they don't understand the difference between trading and investing and they think it's all the same and they've piled money in because of FOMO, which is the worst reason to do anything. Like we used to call it peer pressure, right? And it is this idea that money is, you know, it's easy money. Crypto is easy money. Look at how it's skyrocketing. Like I hate to tell people, but there's no such thing as easy money. If there was easy money, like we'd all be rich, right? That's not the case. If you want to be making money in the longer term and you want to grow your wealth and grow your asset base and you want to be investing, it's a long-term put it in and forget about it and let it grow and let compound interest do its thing. If you want to be day trading, you're gambling. And if that turns you on, then go for your life. But but gambling, the house always wins. You know, I don't think we should be telling people what they shouldn't do, but I think people need to be aware of the downside. And there's huge downside with day trading. There's huge downside with crypto. Now we're talking these non-fungible tokens. I mean, it's just the, the level of speculation out there is just insane. Like, let's call it by its name, right? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, no, of, of course. And, and there's been a lot of hype also around even like stocks. You know, I've received so many emails and messages around uh, the deliver IPO and people asking me should I buy how do I buy and I'm like and I guess for a lot of people the first thing should be think about your pension Absolutely. think about you know your your stocks and share eyes are you invested in funds and you and me we discussed last week that we tend to do this type of you know stock trading on the side and I don't even day trade because it's too expensive that I don't have time I find it extremely stressful so if I buy a stock it's because you know I've done my research I've spent some time on it so it, it's really like looking forward and trying to find you know the trends the companies that you like rather than trying to make a quick win uh, on this type of things. I agree. I mean, I trade with 10% and I look at a six month period. So I, I never day, I never day trade. Like I've never day traded. People who invested in Deliveroo, which of course dropped 30% at IPO. I had people messaging me saying, what does IPO mean? And it's like, if you don't know what an IPO is, you should absolutely not be investing in IPO. <laughs> like, you know, if you don't know, if you don't know the language, then you should not be putting your money there. And that's what worries me is it's it's the FOMO and it's the the peer pressure and all of these influences on um, on social media, not all of whom have a background like yours, right? These are people who talk about skincare one day and talk about how they made a fortune in crypto the next. Like that's not cool. <laughs> like that's you should not be listening to those people. Don't listen to those people. No, but you, I think you're you're raising an important subject, and for me that's an important one because trying to bring you know financial empowerment investing to everyone to women but really like to the masses to make it more democratic we have to talk about all these things but 
I have to be extremely careful and you're right. I mean, if you spend an hour on TikTok, you'll see all these accounts talking about stocks and stuff. And I spent an hour the other day and I was freaked out. I was like, what, what is that? So uh, I think the FCA should start, you know, looking at, you know, what's what's happening there on, on, on social media. And you as a retail investor, make sure you, you know, you take a step back, you do your research, you don't follow, you know, your friend's advice or, you know, these influencers advice, even like my advice, like make sure, you know, you, you, you do your research. And if you can't explain any investment you're doing to a five-year-old, seven-year-old, maybe you shouldn't do it. Or if you can't explain it to your friends. So I think that's, that's, that's a good rule. Yeah, that's great. I think that's great advice. And in general, people should educate themselves so that these kind of influencer, the influencer stuff that's happening backs up what you already believe to be true. Like it shouldn't be, if somebody is saying something that is brand new and you had no idea, double check. Like there's, there's this one video going around YouTube where it's like, did you know you can write off all of your debt? and never pay any of it back. And it's like, whoa, like that's not true on any level. And, you know, and you can just see these people going, oh my God, I can write off all my debt. And, and without realizing that actually the, the repercussions of that financially will be with you for the next 25 years. So just be really careful. If it sounds too good to be true, it always, always is. Yeah. So talking about this investing and, and money and, you know, fear of missing out, it's because maybe people want to make money very quickly because what's what's the goal of this in the end? It's maybe because they want to be rich, but do they actually have financial goals? So we had a discussion last week about the fact that some someone I think asked you, is having a lot of money actually immoral? <laughs> and, you know, do you think having money is good? So we were sort of having this conversation. So I wanted to, to ask you, what is money for you? Yeah, I had never thought of money as being immoral like ever, which is so it's such a fascinating question to be asked. So I think money is a vehicle like any vehicle, right? So your car can either be a weapon going at 60 miles an hour, or it can get you from point A to point B safely. And I think money is exactly the same thing. There are any number of ways in which we know that money can be used badly, and it can be used dangerously, and it can be used as a weapon against people. And, and money also does, if you use it well, buy you freedom, buy you opportunity, enable you to live the life that you want, support the causes that you want to support help your family, help your friends, ensure that there's food on your table and a roof over your head, you know, little things like that. So, so money can be, you know, it can be either, it really depends on who's holding the money, I think. So for me, because I'd like to think that I'm a moral person, you know, a certain amount of my money goes to charity. You know, when, when a friend needs help, I, I give them the help. I've had the, the blessing of having enough funds to be able to start a business to help other people. So I don't see money as being immoral. So it was an interesting thing, but I think money can be used in an immoral way. I think that there is there is the possibility of people who are, you know, potentially already immoral people using their money and, and accumulating money in a way which isn't moral. And I think, and I'm casting no judgments on the founder of Deliveroo. I don't know enough about it. I haven't followed the story. But a lot of the reason people have said that they're angry is that the drivers are not being paid enough. And he is going to get all of this money and therefore it is immoral. And I think that's an interesting conversation. 
but it doesn't make money immoral. And this idea that, you know, money is the root of all evil, I think is, first of all, it's, it's, it's not the actual expression, which is the lack of money is the root of all evil. But, you know, there's nothing less dignified than not having enough money to look after yourself and your family. That's a horrible position to be in. So I think we have to get away from this idea that, that having money or wanting to have money or wanting to be financially comfortable is an immoral attitude. Like, I think that that's very dangerous for, for women as an attitude. Yeah, money is this is this tool basically. Yeah. this form of you know energy that will come and go, but make sure you you know keep enough for for yourself, for your family, and to that will allow you to yeah live the life you want, give you freedom, choices, and you actually write a lot about you know financial issues. And a few weeks ago, I mean, we were in this in the middle of you know International Women's Day. We had a very like heavy week, so. In the UK, Sarah Everard disappeared and then we had Women's Day. So it was crazy. And, and I mean, for me, I had a few, you know, corporate talks for International Women's Day. I write a, a column for the iPaper about how, how do we celebrate women. But to be honest, it was super depressing mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to do anything and, and celebrate women this week. And you actually wrote a piece about financial abuse on your blog. And I will I will share it in the notes. That's something we don't talk about. So we talk about the fact that, yeah, money buys you freedom, choices. But what happens when, you know, you're in a toxic relationship and and what is the role of money? Because we talk about, I mean, we talk more and more, not enough, obviously, about, you know, physical abuse. But what is financial abuse? Yeah, it was a real whiplash week, wasn't it? And I think what what was really interesting to me was that it's very visual, right? Like this girl disappeared. We all know what she looks like. Her photo was everywhere. It's a very visual crime and it was a very visual kind of representation of, of the horror that can happen to women and happens way too often and something that really, you know, I feel very, you know, obviously feel very strongly about along, along so many women. But financial abuse is actually completely hidden. We don't really talk about it. It's not really known. And yet it is often the first step in an abusive relationship. Often the first thing that happens is financial because it is such a weapon And I have been aware of it for a long time because it was one of the reasons I started the business. My parents had a friend, and this is this is 20 years ago. So it was something that, you know, I was aware of, but you know, there was nothing that kind of I did about it, but it always stuck with me. And we went to effectively a wake of her husband, and this woman was like in a red dress and she was dancing. And it was like this weird thing because she had literally just buried her husband that morning. And my parents later explained to me that she'd actually been abused in every way that it is possible to be abused by your, oh, wow. by your spouse for 25 years. And so when he died, she had genuinely suddenly acquired freedom. Um, and that's why she was happy. And it was such a weird thing for me. And why had she never left? Because she was an at-home mom with three kids. And, and how would she put food on the table of her children? She physically couldn't leave because, because of the money. And, and so I've always felt really strongly, and this is part of the reason that it turns out my mum was so determined that I would understand money, because it's the ultimate shackles is finance in a, in a relationship. And we have to talk about it because it is hidden and it's secret and people don't know that it happens. And I mean, it's one in six women. Right. So if you think of your social circle, I mean, we hope it's not, you know, it's not the case. But if you've got more than six friends, chances are one of those women is experiencing some sort of financial abuse at home. 
And that's horrific. That's why I'm so I'm so um, grateful that you do what you do specifically around kind of, you know, around women is we have to demystify money. We have to destigmatize money. We have to be able to turn around to a friend and say, this is happening to me and I don't know what to do. Yeah, because often we don't have anyone we can talk about these things and, and money more generally. Like, you know, maybe you would have a, I mean, if we all had like a financial advisor, a female financial advisor, maybe we would open up about these things. At the moment, we can't. And, you know, financial abuse I guess it's quite hard to, to see if you're not in the relationship. So what are like some of the of the signs that, you know, we, we can spot like the warning signs to help, you know, sort of identify financial abuse in, in our communities? Yeah, I mean, if only there was a red flashing light, right? I, I think what's what's really difficult is that actually it is incredibly shameful. It in itself is obviously not shameful, but people feel incredible shame about something like this. Um, and it can be incredibly difficult to see the warning signs. And, and in a sense, that's why, you know, I mean, heaven forbid, but that's why it's harder to spot than physical abuse because physical abuse leaves bruises and, and financial abuse does not. And often it is incredibly difficult to spot. So having a look at, for example, whose name is on a debit card, right? Like who often, financial abuse is, is basically when liabilities are in your name and assets are in that person's name and they control all of your spending. And so it might be a case of somebody is using cash, for example, to, to pay for a meal because they don't have access to, to credit because they don't have access to, to bank accounts. But it can be impossible to spot. And the only way really, if you suspect, and women, we're pretty good at reading our friends, right? Like we know if somebody's not in a good place, even if we don't know why, because women tend to be much more intuitive about what's happening with people emotionally you know we're, we're we're very good at getting information out of our friends if we know to ask the right questions and if you are suspect about somebody's partner and there's something about them that's a little bit off chances are you're not the only one that's spotting it and, and I guess in case of you know emergency if you don't have anyone to you know to talk about these things and if you're in this situation I mean you can call the police if you're in you know immediate danger I think if you do 999 and then followed by 55 uh, you can, you know, indicate you need help, but you can't actually talk. And there's a really good charity called Women's Aid, and they offer help and support if you're experiencing financial abuse. So again, I'll add that to the to the show notes. You know, help your friends talk about these things because, I guess, with COVID, we're going to see more and more of these. Yeah, un unfortunately. And just be a good friend, which is good advice in general, right? Like just be a good friend, be there for your friends, make sure that they know that if there is a problem that you are there for them. And to be honest, that's just being a good friend in general. But yeah, there's, um, but this is something we, I, I suspect we're going to see more of. And this is why having your own money and having access to your money and understanding money is just so crucial. It could literally save, save your life, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, empowering People financially, that's, you know, your mission at Black Bullion, that's my mission at Vespod. So, you know, there's a lot of things we believe in. But at the same time, we are both startup founders. <laughs> so we had to, you know, start from, from scratch these businesses. You raise some money for your business. I didn't raise money. We have, you know, different circumstances. But what is money for you, like personally versus money um, in business? Because, you know, we are running these startups and people feel, yeah, wow, like, you know, they're super successful. <laughs> it's amazing. They've been in the press. And, you know, it's quite sexy or it was quite sexy to be, you know, a, a startup founder. But something we never talk about is our finances as startup founders, because that can be super challenging. And what's even more challenging is, 
we work in the space, in a personal finance space. So we know what we should be doing, but sometimes we don't pay ourselves enough or we don't manage to save enough money. And then, you know, we can't invest money. So how do you deal with this personally? Yeah, it is so hard, right? It is so hard. I was earning a little bit more than I earned when I was 14 working at McDonald's um, until quite recently when the chairman of my board was like, you cannot be paying yourself such a low salary because if you're stressing about your own personal finances, you can't make good decisions for the business. And I'm now making... 35% of what I earned in my previous job. And look, I'm, I'm carrying debt on behalf of the company that I had taken out a personal loan to lend the business when it needed to, that I only just paid off. But yes, managing your own finances as a founder is super tricky. Um, and we do everything we tell people to do. We do the exact opposite. Hashtag complete hypocrite. I personally was very lucky, quote unquote, I'd been uh, made redundant. I kind of had the, the time, the money and the burning desire to try this. And so, but I had a safe, a financial safety net because I had this redundancy money that does make a difference. I'm very lucky that, you know, I, I have a family which was willing and able and, and did actually support me financially for a few months when things were really, really difficult. That's certainly not everyone's experience. So I think because you and I have come out of very well-paying professions, chances are you, like me, had a little bit of savings. It wasn't quite the danger that a lot of people kind of um, have, which I think is, is, you know, lucky in that, certainly from my point of view. But it is really difficult. The chance of startups failing is high. I mean, it's 85%, right? Which drops as the business is older. So we're no longer at that point. But if you put five years of your life into a business which then fails, and in that time you haven't been saving, you haven't been investing, you haven't been putting money into your pension, then you've lost five years, not just of the money you've put into it, but of lost earnings, which if you're a decent earner, could be hundreds of thousands of pounds. So balancing that and being aware of that and being conscious of that is really important. So I've tried to keep my debt as low as humanly possible. And now that I am earning a little bit more money, I'm back to savings and investing and putting money into pension. Not a lot. Nowhere near what I would have if I was earning a salary, but just trying to stay on top of my personal finances. But it's really difficult. It's re it, it really is. It's, I think, the biggest challenge. Yeah, because also you're so passionate about your mission and what you want to achieve that sometimes nothing else actually matters. It's just, you know, where you want to go and you're like, you know, it's going to work. It's going to work and I'm going to be fine. But you're right. Like if you spend, you know five years, it can be more, 10 years, yeah, yeah. 15 years working so hard on something that you love and then it just doesn't work or something happens to the business. You want to make sure you have your safety net, you have your savings, you have some money saved for, for retirement. Yeah. And, and I think one of the concepts that I think people don't spend enough time thinking about is opportunity cost. And I think that's equally true for life as it is for finance. Like, what am I giving up by doing this thing? And, and you know, you and I have discussed that we've come out of well-paying professions and know that we could always go back into a well-paying profession gives a little bit of comfort because I know that if the business failed tomorrow, which it's not going to, but if the business failed tomorrow, I could have a job next week. I could probably catch up the lost income you know, within the, within a number of years. But if you are like, and this is why I think student entrepreneurship is great because you're young and you can fail quickly and all of that is true. But yeah. actually, if you then, if you start a business, you know, the second you graduate university and you work at it for three years and it fails, you're not, you know, depending on why, on how you failed and on what you've done in that time, you are not necessarily any more employable at the end of that than you were when you graduated university because the skills that you've, you know, the skills that you've developed may or may not be, you know, desired by the market. So just bear in mind, if you're thinking about starting a business, like what is the opportunity cost of doing that? And it, this journey, definitely not for everyone. 
Like how many times a week are you like, I should have just stayed in that well-paying job, right? Like could never go back. Never oh, again. My God. Could never, could never <laughs> could go, never back. go back. I am singularly back. unemployable now. Like I could never work for anyone ever again. But there are days where I'm like, why didn't I take that job at JP Morgan? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, yeah, we're cursed. We're cursed. Passionate founders, we're screwed because we have to do this because we're committed. <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's a hard journey. It really is a hard journey on every level. I, I actually have a question for you that's, that's link to, to that. I mean, how do you balance, you know, this intensity of being a founder and, and all the work? Because, you know, it's actually having a lot of like work to do. It's taking a lot of space in your mind. You know, it's it's like your life, basically. Yeah, yeah. Do you have boundaries? I mean, how do you do you stop? Do you set up like professional and personal boundaries? The challenge of, of being a single person as a founder is that there is nobody else crying for your attention, right? Like in a sense, I think parent entrepreneurs um, have got a little bit of quote unquote luck because in a lot of other ways, obviously it, it also, you're being pulled in a million directions. So that doesn't look so fun. The only thing that stops me working 24 hours a day is that I have to sleep, right? Like, like just phys physiologically. Um, and it's, that's, it's that's good that you do it because some founders don't sleep so much. Like there are times where I get three and four hours a night and it's not healthy. Um, so my body tends to like, I, like I pulled my back out a few years ago and that was my body's way of saying you're being ridiculous. What I've really struggled with with COVID is that best way for me to unwind is I take long weekends. And what I try to do is take long weekends every two months. I take four days off and go somewhere new and I go with no laptop. I go with like a notepad and it's when my brain can kind of be creative and think big and do the strategic stuff and all of that. And I can't get creative in my living room because I work in my living room. And so that's been really hard for me. But like, again, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm passionate about it because otherwise this would be a nightmare. But no, I'm, I don't balance and I really don't recommend that. Like you have to have balance in your life. This is not necessarily healthy. In some ways, there's nothing better than not wanting to sleep because you're so excited about what you're doing. On the other hand, yeah. that's like from your mental health and your physical health, that's terrible. So yeah, don't, don't do what I do, kids. Don't do what I do. <laughs> this is bad. Don't yeah, do this. No, but like, you know, passion and, you know, it's, it's, it's your life. I love it. It's the same. Uh, you know, I could work, you know, so much more on this. I love it. Okay. Three quick fire questions for you, Vivi. Best financial decision ever. Uh, starting my business. Worst financial decision. Starting my business. <laughs> it's, it's the best, it's the best and the worst, right? It's the best and the worst because if, if it goes where I want it to go, I can change the world and also hopefully make good money out of it. And if it doesn't, then I will have lost 10 years of income and kind of been super passionate about something that didn't, that didn't work out. A more traditional answer, I guess, would be that I, I, have a mortgage. So I bought my own home 10 years ago, um, which I'm kind of really grateful for. That's the best. And the worst financial decision ever would be, oh, I don't actually know if I've got anything that I like really totally regret. I've been pretty conservative. So I'm pretty happy with that. Let's see if you give me the same answer for this third question. <laughs> the things you spend the most money on at the moment. My business. Uh, no, to, to be honest, at the moment, I'm spending the most amount of money of, of everything apart from my mortgage on, on my investments. I'm pretty much debt free for the first time since I started the business. Um, and I'm plowing, thank you, that was uh, it was quite the fun struggle, but I'm plowing as much money as I can at the moment into a couple of different funds. But the second the second thing's open, um, it'll be on a couple of holidays because I'm desperate for a break. And books, I spend way too much money on books. Yeah, me too. It's ridiculous. This is fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, everyone... 
stay financially healthy while you study, but it doesn't matter if you are a student or not, is quite short. You can take it with you anywhere. I see like 80 pages. There's a lot of, you know, tables and like little exercises. Very easy to read. So I think we'll do a little giveaway also on, um, on our page. Fabulous. We'd love that. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to share or to recommend uh, to anyone listening uh, to this episode? Um, I mean, the thing that I would recommend is get off your booty and, and get get cracking with setting yourself up, right? Like take the inspiration that you get for, and I think honestly, Emily, you're doing such an amazing job with Vestpod. It's, it was really like an asset that we really needed. So really well done. Um, and your community, you know, obviously engaged. If you're engaged by listening and reading, then it's time to start actually actioning your investments. So that would be like my one thing, put in a couple of hundred pounds, like just get started and you'll see how fun and easy it is. And also, you'll watch your money grow. The best time was yesterday. The next best time is today. So just, you know, get cracking, read as much as you can, learn as much as you can, but but action it because uh, at some point you actually have to jump into the water. Thank you so much, Vivi. Where can we find you? Yeah, you can find me everywhere. I'm on I'm on Twitter with um, with Vivi Friedgard. I'm on Instagram. And if you are one of those people that's having any sort of trouble and you don't have any friends to talk to, my DMs are open. I'm always there. So uh, thank you so much for having me and keep doing what you're doing. It's really, really important and fabulous work. And I'm, I'm so proud to know you. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Vivi. And I know you're empowering the, the next generation. So at least, you know, my work will maybe stop one day and, you know, we're all going to be financially. <laughs> Empowered. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. Take care of yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on Vespot.com. Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at Vespot.com. Thank you. Speak to you soon.